All right, if you have your Bibles, please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. As I said, this is quite a chapter, and uh, we're going to get into it. I'm sure we won't finish it, but I encourage you to read it and study it yourself. Look how Paul begins this chapter. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. He says, are we beginning to praise ourselves again? Now, when you read this statement, you could have two, see two implications here. The first is that he praised himself before. Isn't that right? Because he says, are we beginning to praise ourselves again? In other words, did Paul praise himself before the Corinthians before? That's one way of looking at it. The second way of looking at it is, uh, is that the false teachers there who were complaining against Paul and had gotten the Corinthian church to turn against Paul now, that Paul anticipated them questioning his authenticity as an apostle. And so he is saying now, I will have to demonstrate that I am in fact an apostle who is being called of God. And I'm ready and I'm willing it to do it again. He did it first to the Corinthians when he first went. Now he says it looks like I have to demonstrate that I am an authentic preacher, an apostle again. And he says, are we like others who need to bring you letters of recommendations or who ask you to write such letters on their behalf? Surely not. Paul is referring to a custom of the day. You see, back then, preachers used to go, they call them itinerant preachers. We know about a little bit of this in the Bahamas in the early days, where you have evangelists going all over to preach. Now, how were the churches that they went to in other towns or cities to know that they were, in fact, qualified? Well, the churches would give them what they call letters of commendation. Now, what is happening at Corinth is that the Corinthian Christians now have been persuaded by the false teachers to question the authenticity of the Apostle Paul as to whether or not he was a real preacher, qualified, also whether or not he was in the ministry just for the money. We'll see that later on. So Paul is saying now, are you saying to me after what I've done and ministered in your church that I have to get letters of commendation like these other people? In fact, Paul is implying here that the false teachers, the only thing they had to say that they were true teachers was these letters. And he said, you watch, when, you leave, when they leave your church, they're going to ask you to give them a letter of qualifications. Now he says, you want me to do the same thing? To ask you for a letter of commendation as to my ministry? Paul says, surely this should not be necessary. Look at what he says. It says, the only letter of recommendation we need is you yourselves. Your lives are a letter written in our hearts. Everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. Paul says, I really don't need a letter written by pen and ink. You are my letter of recommendation to the fact that I am a genuine apostle. When I came to Corinth, this is the implication. You were pagans. You're going to see this. You were people who worshipped other gods. You were idolaters. You were homosexuals. You were thieves. He says this in his epistle very good. He says, but now God has washed you. God has cleansed you. And you are now children of God. 
He says, if you want to have a letter of, of proof or indication that I am a true apostle, look at yourselves. Now, I know we could see Sister Weish and was he alive, Pastor Weish, saying the same thing. If anyone wanted to question the authenticity of the ministry of Pastor Weish or Sister Weish in this church, all we have to do is says, look at these individuals who have come to place faith in Christ and have been living faithfully through the years. Their lives have been changed. Paul is saying that it's the same thing here. He says, notice, everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. The members of the Corinthian church were recognized in that city as having changed their lives because of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Paul is saying, I do not need to demonstrate that I am a genuine apostle to you because you yourselves are evidence of that fact. I don't need what these false teachers needed. And so this is sort of an, a sarcastic question he's, he's using. You want proof? You would approve. Just look at the mirror. Look at what you were before I came. You are my proof that I was sent of God. All right? Then he goes on, verse 3. Clearly, you are a letter from Christ. Notice, from Christ. Showing the result of our ministry among you. This letter is written not with pen and ink, but with the spirit of the living God. It is carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. He's saying, listen, the evidence that I am a man who has been called by God to proclaim the gospel is you. Just look at your life. And I don't need a letter. Look in your own heart as I look in mine. You see that in a moment. Look in your own heart. You have a love for God. You have a love for serving him. You have turned from idols to serve the true and living God. By the way, this is a sort of a implied way that you should examine our own lives. You know, many of us today, if I ask you, are you a Christian? They say, yes. I say, how do you know that? Well, on September the 22nd, 1954, I was in Deadman's Key, Long Island. And at 10.15, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. That's my testimony. But you see, if I cannot say I know that I'm a Christian because my life has changed, I, was, I used to be a, uh, I used to drink, I used to gamble. I used to fool around pornography. But all of those things are being taken away, taken out of my life. How do I know that I am a Christian? It's because of what God has done in my life and he continues to do in my life. Is he speaking to you today from his word? The Bible says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. That's a mark of a genuine Christian. You continue to hear the voice of God speaking through the scripture and he speaks to you, you follow him. You understand? That's an evidence. And that is Paul is saying here. Look in your own life. Look in your own heart. You know that what you are today is because of my ministry among you. I don't need to get or have a letter of recommendation written in pen and ink. Now he says, you are a letter from Christ showing the results of my ministry among you. This letter is written not with pen and ink, but with the spirit of the living God. It is carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. Now, 
This is the first indication of what Paul is going to be teaching in this chapter. This is a clear contrast between the old covenant, the law, and the new covenant represented by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is going to show that the difference between his ministry and the ministry of the Judaizers was the fact that they were still ministering under the law, whereas he was ministering under grace, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a clear contrast then between the old covenant represented by the law and the new covenant represented by the gospel. Paul explains the fact that the Corinthians were Paul's letter of recommendation because it was clear to all the Lord had done a work of grace in their lives. Now here's the point. The Lord had done it. They didn't do it by obeying the law. They didn't by keeping the law. They did it because God the Spirit worked in their lives and transformed their lives. Paul had simply been used as an instrument by God to manifest his power through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's making the point here that the Lord Jesus is the one who had done the work in their lives. But he did it through his ministry. And that's an important point here. He further states here that whereas the Judaizers, this was the name given to the false teachers, because these false teachers were teaching that faith alone was not enough to save. In order to become a Christian, in order to be saved, you also had, along with faith, to obey the law. You had to be circumcised. You had to do different things and so on. Paul is trying to correct that here. So he's trying to show we're not living under that economy or that old covenant anymore. We are in and under a new covenant, a covenant of grace, represented by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, and he talks about the law now being written on human hearts, human flesh, in the flesh rather than on stones. When the law that established the nation of Israel, that established the kingdom of Israel, was given, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, they were written on stones. Remember that, right? But even though Israel did not keep the conditions that were laid down. Now here is the important thing, and this is where it becomes a little more uh, difficult if you don't follow. The law was never given by God to save anyone. The law simply showed what was necessary to be saved. As Paul says in Galatians, the law was a schoolmaster to drive us to the cross, to drive us to Jesus Christ. The law demanded things that an individual could not do. However, when it was given and the conditions were laid down, the people of Israel said, we will obey the law. But they didn't. Now, a covenant is something that is an agreement that is made between two people. Sometimes the covenant says that in order for this, these things to come true, Individuals have to do something. Other times, covenant is given and the individuals don't have to do anything. It's a covenant of grace. It's only the person who makes the covenant who does it. In the case of the law that established the kingdom of Israel, 
The condition was that the covenant would only be true if Israel obeyed. In other words, it was dependent upon man, not God. But of course, we know that man failed. But even though they failed, God made a promise of love to them. He says, there's coming a day when I will put my law in your heart. And you will serve me not because you are forced to do it, but because you want to do it because it comes from your heart. And Paul is trying to show that's the covenant that he is ministering under. It's a covenant of grace, not of law. And he's showing here that when God transformed a person, it wasn't Paul who did it, although Paul was used by God, but it was God himself who did it. That's why when I see a young person with a, the words across the chest, I am proud to be a Christian. I said, no, no, no. That's paradoxical. You can never be proud to be a Christian. Because you see, normally pride is based on something that we do. Our own efforts. Isn't that right? We should be thankful that we are a Christian, but not proud. Because we had nothing to do with our salvation. It was done all by God. That's what Paul is trying to bring out here. Now, in spite of what some groups say, religious groups say, Paul is talking here about the passing away of the Ten Commandments. Of course, there's some people who don't believe that. But Paul is very clear here. There's no doubt that when Paul refers to tablets of stone, he's referring to the Ten Commandments, not just the Jewish ceremonial laws. He's referring to the Ten Commandments that were written on the tablets of stone. Paul is underlying the difference between the law and the gospel. He is saying, whereas the law had been inscribed on tablets of stone on Mount Sinai, now under the gospel of grace, the new covenant, God seeks obedience to the message of grace and love that is written in human hearts. You see, and it's important for us to understand this. We cannot force anyone to do anything that is pleasing to God. You say, what? Well, here's the reason why I'm saying that. If you don't do it from your free will and voluntarily, then you're not doing it to please God. You're doing it to please the person who forces you to do it. You understand what I'm saying? And that's important for us to understand. And so even when you refuse to minister within the church, you're not really, really refusing the, the pastoral board or the deacons or any way, you are refusing God because God, Jesus Christ, is the final head of the church. You understand what I'm saying? We cannot force anyone to do anything that brings glory to God. That's why people think I'm a little critical sometimes when I say this. You know, we have the saying, only what's done for Christ will last. There's a lot of things that are done for Christ in name, but it's not really done for Christ at all. So I change that. I say the only thing that is done by Christ in our lives will last. It's very important to see the distinction here. Verse 4. We are confident of all this because of our great trust in God through Christ. What is, what is he confident in? He is confident in the transforming power of God through the gospel in the lives of the Corinthians. He's saying that I am confident that when I preach the gospel, that God has the ability to change our lives. I have no fear of saying that. I know it's going to happen once we trust Christ. 
But if you're under the law, I don't know what's going to happen because I don't know if you're going to obey it or not. But he says, when it comes to the gospel, I know God is going to keep his part. Because you see, the covenant of grace doesn't depend on you. The covenant of grace depends upon Jesus Christ. All right? That's the point. It depends upon Jesus Christ. So Paul explains why he has such conviction and assurance in what he is saying about the transforming power of God. His confidence is in God, not himself. That's why he says his work, his ministry can withstand any scrutiny, any examination. Because he knows that uh, his work is based solely upon the power of Christ and not his own. So it could withstand examination of anyone else. And he says, the proof of this is you. You look at yourself, period. You are my letter of commendation when it comes to being a true preacher. Then he repeats that in verse 5. Notice what he says. It is not that we think we are qualified to do anything of our own. In other words, when I boast about your transformation from a pagan into a saint... I am not boasting in what I have done. I am boasting in what Jesus Christ has done. He's saying I have nothing to boast of. Because it's not me who's doing the work. It's Jesus Christ. See, this is a difference between the new covenant and the old covenant. The new covenant is based on what Jesus is doing in our lives. Whereas the old covenant is based on what we do to please him ourselves. Now... He's also answering the question that he posed in chapter 2. When he asked, who is adequate for these things? Talking about the work of God. Who is adequate? He is saying here, no one is adequate in themselves. Notice he goes on. Our qualification comes from God. Who is qualified to be a minister of the gospel? Nobody. But if God calls you to that work in the sense of, and he calls everyone when you get right down to it in the scriptures, but when God gives us something to do, he qualifies us to be able to do it. In other words, someone has said, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. You understand what I'm saying? And that's an important thing for us to understand. That's why if we have a conviction in our heart and our soul based on the word of God, that God wants us to do something, we should never say we cannot do it. We should never say we cannot do it. Because if God has directed us to do that, and we are sure this is the word of God, then we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. This is what Paul is saying here now. In other words, the apostle, the, the apostle Paul is not anxious to take credit for himself. He realized that if God had not made him sufficient for the ministry, then nothing would have been accomplished. And we must recognize this too. Whenever you have an individual who is a leader or pastor or leader of any ministry and they are boasting about what they have done, go look for another leader. All right? Because you want individuals who are dependent upon God all the time for the ministry, not themselves. It's not the, degree, the degrees that we have, but it's our total commitment to Jesus Christ that counts. Now, Paul is going to be talking about this throughout the epistle because this is an important point that he wants to make here because of the fact that the false teachers were making an inroad into church. They were coming into the church, preaching false doctrine. Some people were believing it, and as a result, they were questioning the authenticity of the Apostle Paul. 
Friends, we live in a day where false teaching and false teachers are pervasive to this land. There's no doubt about it. Just this morning, I got up a little early, and so after struggling with the text a little, I turned on the TV and I was listening to some things. It's amazing what you hear if you listen. Some words sound so good, but when you examine them carefully, you find that they're not true to the word of God. It's only what man is saying, it's only what man is making up, but it's not based on the word of God at all. And many people are falling for that. Falling for the fluff of the gospel, not the meat. Too many of our people are still going to fast food restaurants spiritually rather than going to the word where the word of God is taught and proclaimed for what it is, the word of God and not the word of man. Notice what he says in verse 6. God has enabled us to be ministers of his new covenant. This is a covenant not of written laws, but of the spirit. The old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the spirit gives life. This is a a crucial statement here for those who still believe that the law is in force today. This is a clear contrast between the law and the gospel message. The gospel message represents the new covenant. The new covenant was ratified by the death of Jesus Christ. And every time we commemorate the Lord's Supper, we are commemorating the ratification of the new covenant because Jesus Christ is the one who instituted that. Tonight we're going to be observing the Lord's Supper and we're going to focus on that a little bit because many times we forget the tremendous change that took place as a result of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything has changed concerning our relationship to God and the way he deals with us. Everything changed. And the Lord's Supper commemorates that. It says that when we do this, we uh, commemorate the new covenant. It's the new covenant in my blood, he says. The old covenant was also instituted with blood. It was also instituted with the presence of the glory of God. We're going to see that as we go along. But we're going to show that When the new covenant came in, it surpassed all of this the way it was done when the old covenant was was given. And so, having discussed his own credentials, Paul goes on now to talk about the nature of the gospel ministry today. He contrasts the old covenant, the law, and the new covenant, the gospel, throughout this. You see, those who were criticizing him so severely in Corinth were men who sought to mix law and grace. And we still have that going on today. We still have people who claim to be preaching the gospel of grace who are mixing grace with law. Let me give you a simple example of that. We would get up here and we would say, gospel is free. Salvation is free. You don't have to do anything. Then we give an invitation. Do you want to receive Christ? Raise your hand or walk down the aisle. The aisle is giving that the way I receive Christ is by raising my hand or walking down the aisle. See, that's works. That's what we have to do. So we mix grace and law or works without even realizing we're doing it. And that's why many people respond to the gospel of man thinking it is the gospel of God. And so many people who believe they are saved, they're not saved at all. 
Because they're not responding to the gospel of grace. They feel they must do something. They have to pray. They have to write. They have to hold up. They have to do something. Scripture tells us that salvation is by grace alone. It's simply relying upon the work that has already done for, been done for us in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Friends, listen. Law and grace do not mix. You have to understand that. Law and grace do not mix. If we believe we have to do anything, I don't care what it is, in order to be saved, we will not be saved. We will not be saved. It's only when we rely totally and completely upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because that's what God has accepted on our behalf. Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sin. God raised him from the dead. Why? Well, to validate the fact that he had accepted Christ's death on your behalf. And all we had to do is accept the same thing God did. And that's the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Paul is going on now to demonstrate that God had made him a competent or qualified servant of the new covenant, not of the old covenant. Let me just explain this once more before we close. A covenant, we call it a testament. We have the Old Testament and New Testament. Literally, it's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. A covenant is a promise or an agreement or a testament. The Old Covenant was the legal system delivered by God to Moses. Under this, blessing was conditioned upon what we did, obedience. It was a covenant, an agreement of works. I do this, God will do that. It was an agreement between God and man that if man did his part, God would do his part. But because this covenant depended on man, it could not produce righteousness. Because righteousness, true righteousness, can only be given to us by God. All of our righteousness are what? Filthy rags. All right? So our works cannot produce righteousness. But the new covenant now is represented by the gospel. is entirely different. Under this, God promises or covenants to bless anyone freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Listen carefully now. Everything under the new covenant depends on God and not on man. Everything. Therefore, the new covenant is able to accomplish what the old covenant could not accomplish. And then Paul goes on to the rest of this chapter to give several striking, vivid contrasts of the old covenant with the new. First one is right here. He says in verse 6, It's not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now usually when we go to this verse, we interpret it to mean that if you, te- if you take the outward, literal words of Scripture and try to be obedient to the letter without desiring to be obedient to the full spirit of the passage, then it will harm you or help you, I mean, harm you or hurt you rather than help you. That's how we normally interpret this. It means if you take the letter of the word and not the spirit, it means that you don't have the attitude, the right attitude. Now that might be an okay application, but that's not the interpretation of this passage. It's important for us to understand this. The Pharisees, by the way, were an example of taking the command according to the letter and not the spirit. 
They were very scrupulous in their tithing, for instance. And they tithed everything they had, even down to black pepper and salt, we would say today. All right? In other words, if they have a, a bottle of black pepper, they can give a tenth of that. If they have a bottle of pepper, of a salt, they can give a tenth. They, they were careful to do that. But Jesus still condemned them. Why? Because they said he didn't do it from the heart. So this is the proper application, but it's not the right interpretation. All right? You see, in verse 6, the letter refers to the law of Moses, not to the word of God. The letter refers to the law of Moses. The spirit refers to the gospel of grace given by God. And so when Paul says that the letter kills, he's speaking of the ministry of the law. No matter how you obeyed the law, the end was still death. That's what he's saying. No matter how you obeyed it, no matter what it done, the end was the same. It was death. For instance, in Romans 3.20, by the law is the knowledge of sin. Galatians 3.10, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. The end of the law was always death. That's what Paul is talking here when he talks about the letter of the law. Friends, listen, God never intended the law to be the means of giving life. It was designed to bring the knowledge of sin and to convict us of sin. As Paul says in Galatians, to drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ. The new covenant, on the other hand, is called spirit. It represents the spiritual fulfillment of the types and shadows of the old covenant. What the law demanded but could not produce is now effectively done by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ under the new covenant. One Bible commentator, commentator J.M. Davies, puts it this way, and I like this. He says, this ministry of the letter that kills is illustrated in the 3,000 killed at Sinai when the law was given at the inauguration of the old covenant. But the ministry of the spirit, the life-giving ministry under the new covenant, is illustrated by the 3,000 people who were saved on the day of Pentecost. Different contrast altogether. Now he goes on to verse 7 and 8 and he contrasts the two covenants and he talks about the glory. And just let me summarize this and we'll close. When you read verses 7 and 8, you'll find that the law was inaugurated with glory. God's glory was present on Mount Sinai. You read it, you'll see that. In fact, the people were so afraid they wouldn't want to even go near the mountain. God's glory was shown. In fact, we're going to see that when Moses went up, and, and we'll talk about this next time because it's so, in, so important, his face glowed when he came down because of the glory of God. Paul is going to show here that when the new covenant was given, it was also given with glory, but a glory that outdid the glory of Mount Sinai. In fact, the glory was so different, he says, that when the new covenant comes on, that it is so different from the old one, it actually causes the old one to fade away. And for instance, suppose you are in a dark room and you light a candle. That candle lights up the room. Isn't that right? Now, what happens when you turn on all of the lights that you have and they're powerful lights? That candle is still lit, but it doesn't mean a thing. What happens? This bigger light just overpowers it. That's what he talks about in verses 7 and 8. 
when the new covenant was given, the glory that was associated simply smothered the old covenant. The idea is that when the new came, the old one went. Now our seven day people don't like that, but that's what the text teach very clearly here. All right? And he's going to show here that that glory is now manifested in us. It's not outwardly. When Moses came down, his face shone for a while, and he hid it under a veil. He wasn't hiding. Read the passage carefully. Then we'll close here now. This is why I knew I'd have a problem, because this is such a wonderful passage right now. Moses was not hiding the glory. Listen carefully. Moses was hiding the fact that the glory was passing away. All right? He wasn't hiding the glory. He was hiding the fact that it was fading away. The more you looked at Moses, the more you will see that the glory was fading. But now he's saying that's not true with the Christian when you read the rest of the passage. That glory does not come from outside and shines on us. That glory is now inside and shines outward. In other words, we are not affected by the glory. The new covenant is the glory. And when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, that glory actually becomes resident within us. And as we look upon Jesus Christ, we go from glory to glory. This is the, the rest of the passage, and you've got to get in this. is a wonderful passage. We go from glory to glory. In other words, our glory in Christ does not dim. But the longer we look at Christ, the more we become like him, so the more the glory shows. We talked about Sister Weesh again, the fact that, you know, her inner beauty shows all the time. That comes from within, you see. And what he's showing here is that the way to holiness, the way to growing in his Christian maturity, is not by doing things, although doing things are all right after we become Christians, but that does not make us Christ-like. No matter how many times we might teach a class, we might go in the neighborhood, we might serve the poor, we might do whatever, no matter how many times or how long we do that, that does not make us Christ-like. What makes us Christ-like is by focusing on Jesus Christ, looking at the author and completer or finisher of our faith. And the longer we gaze at Christ, the more of his glory will show in our lives. That's what he's teaching here. And we're going to spend more time on that next week, Lord willing. So I think I'll close there for right now. Let's close in the word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that it's a word that comes under the glorious new covenant. And even as we focus upon Jesus Christ in the word, we can go from glory to glory, one degree of glory to the next. Help all of us as your people to so gaze upon our Lord Jesus Christ, to so look at him at all times, that this glory will be manifested in our lives at all times. Thank you for these young people who are here again. We ask your special blessing upon them. Father, we pray that each and every one of them might have come to place faith in Christ, either or they've already done it or they'll come to do it today. Bless their lives and use them for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.